Take your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We are going to get back to Mark eventually. Somebody yelled at me this morning because they had read ahead in Mark and they were all ready for today. Oh, the Lord just had me different places lately, so. Luke chapter 22, let's start reading in verse number 1. As always, if you do not have a Bible, and we always encourage you to carry your Bible to church, uh, you need that to keep me honest. And if you don't have one with you, there's one in the seat in front of you, and I encourage you to get it and read along. Luke 22, verse number 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him, and he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. And there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times. You will deny three times that you know me. I want us to look specifically at verses 31 and 32 this morning. Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Father God, I pray this morning that you would fill me with your spirit, help me to preach clearly and accurately and practically and 
exactly what you once said today. Give boldness where it's needed, I pray. Give compassion where it's needed, I pray. Help us all, Lord, to be filled with your spirit that we might hear. And I pray if there's anybody here who does not yet know uh, the Savior, I pray they would know him by the end of this day. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus mentions a person here. He mentions a person named Satan. And I wanted to spend just a few moments this morning answer, asking the question and answering the question, who is this guy? Who is Satan that is mentioned? Now, I, he's mentioned in our church statement of faith. We have these words in our statement of faith. We believe in the reality and personality of the devil or Satan, the enemy of God and man, and that he is destined to eternal judgment in the lake of fire. Some years ago, we studied our statement of faith, and we preached various lessons on various aspects of it, and we have uh, an entire study on uh, the doctrine of Satan and what we believe about that. And so if you want to know more, we can dig that out for you. But uh, the gist of the study, uh, as I looked back through my old notes on it, the gist of the study was simply this. Satan is a real person, and he is our real enemy. He's a defeated enemy, to be sure, so we don't have to worry about him, and we don't have to fear him, but he is nonetheless real. One of these days, we're going to rejoice as we watch him receive his final judgment and be eternally removed from the picture. But for now, uh, we, we live in a world that is influenced by and largely controlled by Satan. He's real. Did you know that there are 22 different names for Satan listed in the Bible? 22. He is referred to as Satan. That's, of course, his, his most common name. It means adversary. That's used 52 times in the Bible. He's referred to as the devil, uh, which means slanderer. That's used 30, 35 times. But other references uh, include things like the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, the king of death, the prince of this world, the ruler of darkness, Leviathan. He's mentioned in the Old Testament. Isaiah refers to him as one who dwells in the sea of humanity, Lucifer. The light-bearing one, the dragon, the deceiver, Apollyon, Beelzebub, Belial, the wicked one, the tempter, the accuser of the brethren, an angel of light, a liar, a murderer, the enemy, and a roaring lion. Twenty-two different names for Satan in the Bible. Satan is mentioned in seven of the Old Testament books, and Satan is mentioned by every single New Testament writer. So Satan is real. He's not a hobgoblin. He's not somebody with horns and a pitchfork. Satan is our very real enemy. And Jesus spoke here of Satan. He spoke to Peter and the disciples. And so I want to spend just a few moments this morning looking at what he said and see if we might not be encouraged a little bit by it. Verse number 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. That verse, I do not know why that verse has been on my mind for Several days now, maybe even a couple of weeks, uh, which may lead to why we're talking about it this morning. But I just, I just been meditating on it a lot, and as I studied it, I found this: Jesus was talking specifically to all of the apostles, uh, and Peter in, 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 well, in generally all the apostles, and Peter in particular. That you in verse number thirty-one, when we first read it, we think he's just saying that Satan has desired you, Peter. What he's really saying is he's desiring all of you. The word you in verse number 31 is plural every place that it's used. And if we compare that verse to the other three gospel accounts of this, we see that they back it up. Jesus was speaking there of all of them. Satan has desired to have all of you, that he may sift all of you as wheat. 
But then when we get down to verse number 32, the very next verse, we see there that the you that is used there four different times, you or your, is all singular. In that verse, he's talking very specifically about Peter. So if you look at it and you read it that way, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for all of you guys that he may sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith, Peter, should not fail. And when you, Peter, have returned to me, you strengthen your brethren. Our adversary, the devil, desires to sift us collectively. And he will do anything he can to destroy the work of God. And he does this by sifting us individually, each individual person. Taking out Peter was a very effective strategy in trying to take out the whole group. And if we could just look at a quick, quick little look at what did happen after this, we find out that that, that very nearly succeeded. It, it really was an effective strategy. Peter did indeed betray the Savior. Famously outside of Caiaphas' home, warming himself by the fire while the Lord was on trial within, uh, a little girl, a young girl, accused him of being a Christ follower, and he denied it. He denied it three times. We only need to look a few verses further to read of that sad event, and I was going to read it, but for sake of time, I think I won't. But if you look down to chapter 22 and verses 54 through 62, you can read of that, and of course, you know the story anyway. Peter was so broken by that experience. And then shortly after, by thinking that the entire ministry of the Lord was over, the crucifixion of the Lord had taken place, it seemed like everything that Jesus had accomplished was destroyed. He was, he was so broken by this that he came to a point where he almost quit. He almost threw the whole thing in. Uh, he decided to go back to fishing. Now, not everybody interprets this verse that way, but John chapter 21 and verse number 3, Simon Peter said to them, to the other disciples, I'm going fishing. And I've always interpreted that and read other places where it's interpreted that what he was saying is, I'm going back to fishing. Not just, I want to go on a fishing trip today. No, I'm throwing it in, guys. I'm going back to fishing. And the very next words spoken by the disciples when he made that announcement are these. Then they said to him, we will go with you. If Peter goes, they all go. Satan desired to take them all out, to sift them all as wheat. So what did he do? He set his sights on Peter. And so when we read Jesus' warning to Simon and the disciples in verse 31, we realize his goal, Satan's goal, is to sift the entire group as wheat, to throw everything he has at the entire group and make it ineffective for Christ. That's his goal, but his target was Peter, specifically Peter. So what does this mean to us? That's the interpretation, but what does it mean? How do we apply it to our lives as we think through these things. Well, the primary application is obvious, and I think I've already stated it. Satan wants to sift us as wheat, church. Satan wants to make us fail in serving our Lord, and he accomplishes that goal by targeting you, each one of you. All of us influence those around us, and all of us can take others down if Satan manages to take us out. Take out Eve. Take out everybody. Take out Adam. And then everybody to follow. Take out Achan. And, uh, and, uh, I forgot the reference. Joshua chapter 7. Take out Achan. You take out all the children of Israel. Get him to sin. Just one man. And the whole place suffers, loses battles, 
and is affected. Take out Peter and you take out the rest of the disciples. You trip up the church before it's even started. Take out John Mark. We've been studying in Mark for such a long time, and we know that the history of John Mark is that he got discouraged and walked away and quit. Take out John Mark and you discourage the Apostle Paul in the process. Discourage the Apostle Paul and you might possibly stop the march of Christianity across the world before it's even gotten started. We are not ignorant of his devices. This is how Satan works. We know that our adversary is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And every individual believer he knocks out of the race takes a whole swath of other believers along for the ride. You may think you're insignificant. You may think that you don't have any influence over other people. And this only applies to maybe leaders in the church or leaders across other people. But that's not true. That's precisely what he wants you to think. All of us are influencers. Over others, John Donne famously wrote this poem. You've at least heard parts of it. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, or as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. No man is an island. Brother, no woman is an island, sister. (laughs) And so we, we need to ask not for whom Jesus is speaking here when he says that Satan has desired to have you, that he might sift you his wheat. He's speaking to you, and he's speaking to me. Now, a couple of questions come to my mind as I think about this. We might, we might ask this one, for example. We might ask how Satan tries to sift us as wheat. What does it look like? What does that mean? How does Satan sift? Well, there's innumerable things, siftings, that I think Satan puts believers through. Discouragement would certainly be one, wouldn't it? Believers are knocked out of the race all the time because they become discouraged. We only need to look to the Old Testament to the prophet Elijah. Remember Elijah won a great victory and then just got in a funk and got all thumbsucky and went and sat down under a juniper tree and got suicidal. He was so depressed. Lord, it's enough. Let me die. Discouragement. I knew, I knew a fellow in, in New Jersey when I was there as an assistant pastor in the church. His name was Bill, and he was, uh, he was the leader of the youth. And uh, he had tre- tremendous ministry. He and his wife and many young people came to know the Lord and all good things. And then uh, he had a large family. He had a lot of kids. and His wife was uh, with child, and then she went in to have a baby and died in childbirth. And Bill was knocked for a loop out of the race for the longest of times. He continued to come to church, but he dropped out of all the ministries, and certainly no one could blame him. He was devastated by this event. And I remember a time that the pastor was trying to talk to Bill and just encourage him to get back into things and just get back into serving the Lord. Bill looked at him and said, he said, there's there's just been a lot of things happen to me, Pastor. And we knew that. We saw them, but they discouraged him, and he was out. And yet he had such influence on the people. So many people were taken out when he was taken out. Disillusionment concerning other Christians is another way he sifts us. Famous failures amongst people, people who are high up in Christianity, and they fall, and uh, they take an awful lot of people with them. A lot of people who are looking for an excuse follow with them. 
famous failures. I think also pew pettiness can take some out. You know what I mean by that? I mean the, the little bickerings and gripings and complainings and nonsense that goes on amongst all of us all the time within the pews. That's people here. Sometimes it takes we get disillusioned. And that's one of the ways Satan sifts us. Weariness in the work is yet a third way. Maybe more in that one than any other. The few who get so discouraged and so down and so uh, get worn out watching other believers never getting worn out. They do all the work, and they wonder why nobody else does any of the work, and they get taken out of the race. All these are ways Satan tries to sift us. And, of course, sin, sin is the oldest and most used means. And every one of those things I just described to you can actually fall into that category. I mean, we need to repent of discouragement, don't we? Discouragement is not a righteous state for us to be in. Discouragement is a place where, where we merely are failing to rejoice in the victory and reward that is ours. We ought not to be that way. And when we feel it, we ought to say, Lord, help me and forgive me. It's, it's sin. We need to repent of disillusionment. Because it's merely a symptom of taking our eyes off Christ and looking at other people. Whether it's famous people or the people sitting around us. We're not supposed to be looking at them. We're supposed to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus always. Great antidote to and prevention against disillusionment is just that. Eyes on Jesus unwaveringly. Well, we might ask another question. We might ask who Satan tries to sift as weak. And we've already alluded to it. We've already alluded to the fact that none of us are immune. His goal is to make us, to, 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 to get all of us who name the name of Christ. But just as he targeted one who had influence in this group, he targets those who have influence over somebody else. And so, uh, obviously, pastors, elders, deacons, deaconesses amongst us would all be uh, in his sights. Sunday school teachers, dads, dads, moms, brothers, sisters, anybody who has influence. So if we cannot escape the reality of our adversary seeking to sift us as wheat, is there anything we can do to protect ourselves? Is this just the horrible thing we have to deal with, or is there anything we can do? And I want to suggest a few things that come to mind which might be solutions to this. One of them I think we see in verse number 32. And that is I think we need to remember and rejoice in this glorious fact that Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for us. Look at verse 32. What an astonishing statement Jesus made in verse 32. I have prayed for you. Get a hold of that. Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you. And that's a singular you. I have prayed for You, Peter. You, an individual. And here's the glorious, unimaginable, awesome, mind-bending, soul-blessing truth of the Bible. Is this, that that, the Christian, he prays for you. And he prays for me. Notice that Jesus said he had prayed for Peter. Not present tense, past tense. I have prayed for you. In other words, he'd already been doing it. Before the event, there was such a big thing coming up for Peter took place. He he was already praying about it, already in advance. In the same way Jesus has been praying for you, he has been praying for me. When we come to some speed bump in the road and we think it's going to absolutely trip us up, we can rejoice in the fact Jesus has been praying for us about that all along. Already. When some trial or discouragement or disillusionment or hurt or sinful choice hangs before us like some insurmountable obstacle, we can know that our Savior has been praying for us by name already. And when we think of Jesus praying, our minds always go back to that 
that time that the disciples asked him how to pray. Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples, they said. And so then he, he taught them. And it's what's usually called the Lord's Prayer. After this manner, therefore, pray ye our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Matthew chapter 6. When we think about him praying, that's what we think of. But that wasn't him praying. That was him teaching somebody else how to pray. You want to know about Jesus praying, you go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. You want to flip over there, you can. I'm just going to read a little portion of it, and you'll see this is the real Lord's Prayer. This is where he is personally praying. And I just want to read the part where he was actually praying for these guys. For these disciples, John chapter 17, we start in verse number 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. The scripture might be fulfilled, but now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I pray for them. What a truth. What a truth. And catch the last part. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That's you. That's me. He prayed for us there. And he continues praying for you and me right up to this moment. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So if you feel the, the sifting influence of Satan in your life, you feel that, rejoice and know. Jesus has already been praying for you about it and is praying for you even as we speak. Another thing that we can do is we can follow his example and pray for each other. This would be a really good place for me to plug Wednesday evening prayer meeting, wouldn't it? I should maybe fit that in there somewhere. I won't do that. I already did. <laughs> you ought to be here on Wednesday evening. But uh, we ought to pray for one another. Jesus, Jesus gave us the example there for that. And notice also here also that Jesus not only told Peter he was praying for him, but he encouraged him with a promise that he would get through this. Notice what he said in verse 32. He said, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. I doubt Peter picked up on that. It was, it was, it was not really easy to pick up on there in, in his frame of mind at the time. But he, he did say there, didn't he, that Peter would indeed make it through this trial. When 
you have been converted. When you return to me, strengthen your brother. You're going to go through a trial, Peter. You're going to be sifted. And when it's over, you're going to come through the other side. My having never left you and my having prayed you through it, I'll still be there and you'll still be with me. We ought to pray for one another. And we ought to encourage one another with the promises of Scripture. And when we can look in the rearview mirror sometimes at at the times of sifting the Lord has brought us through, we ought to use those experiences to strengthen one another. Strengthen your brethren after you've come through it. David understood that. He understood that. He mentioned it in his great penitential Psalm 51. He said, Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. This experience that I'm going through, Lord, will be used to help others. David understood it. Paul understood it. And he wrote to the Christians at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. That's a little hard to understand. Maybe the New Living Translation makes it easier. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. When you return to me, you'll get through this trial, Peter. Strengthen your brethren. Use it to help others through their times of trial, Peter. Another thing we can do is we can pray constantly and fervently for our own protection. David in the Psalms, and I hope you read the Psalms a lot. I try to read the Psalms every day. David in the Psalms prayed often that he would not bring shame on himself or others. I pray that prayer a lot, and you ought to. We all should. Jesus taught in the model prayer that we should pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Lord, protect us, is what he was saying. It's a valid request. I love how on Wednesday nights, uh, when we listen to people pray, we get to know people's hearts. You really get to know people in a more intimate way when you hear them pray. Fred, our brother Fred, for example, he so often thanks God for things when he prays. And one of the things that is commonly said by our brother Fred as he prays is, I want to thank the Lord that that he gave me parents who would bring me to church. That one always gets to me. Sonny, our brother Sonny, when he was with us and able to attend, uh, he would almost always pray the same thing. He would almost always say, thank you, Lord, that you don't give me what I deserve. Amen. Our sister Sandy one time prayed. I think I, think I only heard her pray this one time, but it so struck me that I think of it all the time and pray it myself often now. We were talk, talking about our government and our leaders and praying about something. It might have been way back during the election time. I don't know. But I've never forgotten how she prayed for them. She said, Lord, I pray that they are praying. That was so good. So good. Well, my wife Beth used to pray, and it was probably in every prayer that she prayed, Lord, protect us. And we need to do that. Satan wants to sift us. We need to pray for protection. Another thing we can do, these are not rocket science, but just a couple more. We can get back up when Satan knocks us down. We can get back up. You know, Peter did undergo a terrible trial here. 
his courage deserted him. Big, tough, strong Peter. You would have thought he would have had courage. But his courage deserted him, and he denied the Lord he loved. He was sifted. When I was touring Jerusalem, actually every time that I've toured Jerusalem, one of my favorite places to go is a, is a church. It's called, I think it's called the Church of St. Peter of Galicantu or something like that. It's a weird name. It has roosters all over it. It's a church, a Catholic church, that was built over the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. It's one of those places in, in Jerusalem that they are relatively certain they know exactly that this is the very site. You can go down underneath of that church, down into the bowels of the ground underneath of it, and you'll find prison cells. There's a place there where they believe, if it was not there, it was, you know, within that very vicinity where Jesus Christ stood and was tried before Caiaphas in that illegal trial. You can step outside of that church, and there's a road that runs right alongside of it, an ancient, ancient road, just rocks now, completely blocked off. You can't walk on it. That was the actual Roman road that dates to that time. And so you can stand there and stand there and you can imagine Jesus being tried there and then coming out and being led down that road. And that road then, of course, is the beginning of the Via Dolorosa, the road that he walked to the cross. But outside of that very building, outside of that church, there's a picture. And if you look on your bulletin, I've, I've given you a copy of that. A picture, not a picture, there's a statue. I've given you a picture of it on the front of the bulletin. Because I always stand there and look at that picture. I always stand there and look at that statue. And, of course, you can see it shows Peter. and He's warming himself by the little fire there. And there's a little girl there. And she's questioning him. Roman soldiers looking on. And there's a Latin caption there that says, Non novi illum. Something like that. And what it means is I do not know him. What a horrible moment in the life of Peter. I, I, I can't imagine it. What a devastating failure this would have been to him. Of course, Jesus had predicted that before the rooster crowed, Peter would deny him three times. And the statue depicts that as well. You see the rooster standing up over his head? The rooster looming over the whole scene. I can't, I, I can't imagine that Peter ever heard of Rooster Crow ever again. And you know, I don't know if you know this or not, Rooster's Crow every day. Every day of his life, he would have heard Rooster's Crow. I doubt he ever forgot it. Horrible day. Horrible, devastating failure. And you know what? Peter did not stay down. He got back up. He got back up. He returned to serving Christ. He'd never been in danger of losing his salvation, and we need to recognize that. That is not possible. Once we're saved, we're always saved. We're kept by the power of God forever. Peter was not in danger of that, but he came very, very close to putting his future serviceability to God on the shelf and being useless and just throwing it away. But he got back up. Come to the end of John, the last chapter of John. You see him spent some time at Jesus' feet on the shore of Galilee, and he got his heart back right. And he went on to serve Jesus the rest of his life. So get up, brother. Get up, sister. Satan can sift you, but he cannot destroy you. And he cannot keep you down unless you let him do it. He can put you through the ringer, but that's all he can do. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So we need to get up, shake him off, go on for Jesus. If Peter could do it, so too can we. 
And then there's one other thing that I think we can do in those times when sifting is coming. We can be ready for it before it comes. We can be ready for sifting before it comes. Publius Flavius Vigatius Renatus said, and I've quoted this before, in time of peace, prepare for war. Others have also been quoted with or credited with that very saying. Some say that he drew on Horace. Sun Tzu made similar statements in the art of war. It's a truth that's apparent everywhere in times of peace. Prepare for war. We've certainly seen the wisdom of that in our day. What if I wonder, if we were to go back, we have many more current ones we could draw from, but my mind goes back to New Orleans and the hurricane that hit there. What if the administrators of that city and the leaders of that city had said long in advance, look at that crumbling seawall. Why don't we fix that up just in case a hurricane might come along? Don't you think things might have been a little bit differently? We had three of our brothers in Florida this past week tarping roofs and repairing damage. I was discussing that situation with a coworker this week, and I don't know if he's totally accurate in what he said here, but I found it interesting. We were discussing them going, and he asked where they were. I told him, and he said, oh, I have a relative lives there. I said, well, maybe they'll be helping you know, with, with their home. And he said, oh, no. He said, they didn't, they didn't suffer any damage. I don't think they were on the exact island, but in that general vicinity. So why didn't they suffer any damage? He said, well, years ago, he said they decided that they lived in a hurricane area, and so they installed these hurricane shutters on their home. And so now whenever they hear a hurricane's coming, they deploy the shutters, and they've been protected. That probably is not a perfect solution, but they had at least made preparations for war in times of peace. And now their home still stood. We cannot prepare for every attack of the enemy. He is brilliant. He is smarter than us. He's smarter than me. He's smarter than you. He is active. He's always changing his tactics. He's going to attack us from different angles that we can prepare as best as possible. We can make preparations. When war breaks out and all hell breaks loose, churches are full. Have you ever noticed that? Hmm. Prayer meetings bulge. Bibles suddenly get taken off the shelf and dusted off. We pray for help when times of trouble come. Please pray for my sister. She was recently diagnosed with stage 4 lymphoma, and she is not saved. Of course we pray. We do. It comes up in a prayer meeting, and we pray. So many have absolutely no idea how much prayer goes forth about them in prayer meeting. But then the question comes to my mind. <laughs> Why are we waiting for, until now to pray? Why are we waiting? Why not pray for her salvation before the Lord brings finality to her story and cancer brings the final curtain? Trouble comes and Christians pray. Trouble comes and Christians turn to their Bibles. Pastor, I just found out my, my son is struggling with heroin. I'm devastated. Is there something I can show him in the Bible to help him? Of course there is. But why are you waiting until now to show him the Bible? Why are you waiting until now? Why do parents wait until their children openly reject God before training them in the Word of God? Why is that? In times of peace, we fill their minds with Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and, and, and Instagram and TV and every other tool of Satan. We teach them sports, play, are more important than Jesus Christ in the Word. We teach them that spending time with their friends in this world always trumps spending time with their family at church. Teach them worshiping God is optional. 
so optional that if anything else comes up, that might be more interesting than worship. Well, that's, that's where they go. These are the things we teach our children. And then when their minds are bulging with that trash, and their choices reflect that indoctrination, we hand them a Bible. We send them to every activity, teach them every worldly philosophy and idea, and then we wonder why they choose the world over Christ. Are we nuts? Have we lost our minds? Do we not realize the little bit of Bible they get on Sundays in Sunday school is the only place they're going to get it other than what you teach them in the home? We not realize that if we don't ensure the Bible is the vital source that informs their lives now in times of peace, they will not have it in times of war. Our sister Susan recently posted a quote by a fellow named Paul Washer. I don't even know who this guy is. Never heard of him before, but I liked his quote. He said this, and he was directing it at men. Men, your primary responsibility in your home after your wife is for you to disciple your own children. And if you don't do it, you are in sin. You are in sin. And if you turn it over to a Sunday school teacher, you are in sin. And you are, the, you are to be teaching these children more than just stories about animals that went into Noah's Ark. You are to be teaching them about God, about radical depravity, about blood atonement, about propitiation, expiation, justification, sanctification. You are to teach your children. It's a powerful quote, but I would add to it. I would add to it that they need to do it now in times of peace and not wait until we're in the middle of something. Any of the trials, troubles, and tribulations we face from time to time would be handled better and more effectively if we were ready for it, if we had prepared in advance, if we had made preparations for war in times of peace. Well, I'm done. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Our enemy wants to take us all out. That's his goal. And his target is each of us individually. He wants to sift you. So let's learn from Peter's experiences. Let's, let's know and admit that we're not immune to this. Let's worship and rejoice that Jesus prayed for us. Let's be encouraged by that in, in his prayers. Let's pray for our own protection and for that of our brothers and sisters. And let's make preparations for war in times of peace. Let's read and learn our Bibles now. So we'll be ready. Let's be faithful and fervent to prayer now. So we'll be ready. Let's teach those around us, especially our children, now, so that they'll be ready. One day, parents, they, like Fred, will be praising God that you brought them to church and did those things. And finally, when you fail, and you may, get up. Get up. Satan can sift you, Christian, but he can never destroy you. You belong to Jesus. And if you've drifted from that or been knocked off course, you just need to return to him today.